Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thank you for joining me this Thursday, November 16th. I don't usually do this, but this is kind of an unusual breaking news situation here in Chicago. We don't often get CTA train crashes, but we got one late this morning. Apparently, a yellow line train crashed in the Rogers Park neighborhood. Uh, preliminary reports are that the train ran into some kind of rail equipment that was used for snow removal. Uh, Fifteen ambulances responded. Uh, nine people are described as in serious to fair condition. Seven other people also injured, but in good condition. So uh, a total of 16 people injured. Both the yellow and purple line service has been temporarily suspended. Yellow line riders are told to use the 97 Skokie bus. Purple line riders can use the 205 Chicago Gulf bus route. Um, the governor is keeping an eye on this and already offered on social media a thank you to the Chicago Fire Department firefighters and first responders on the scene. Um, yellow line train just slammed into some snow removal equipment that apparently was sitting on the track. Been a long time since we had, since we had a problem like this. Our trains, they, they may not run on time, but they don't usually crash. Anyway, other news of this day, you may have heard Eugene Vindeman is running for Congress in Virginia. He is Alex Vindeman's twin brother. The two of them were both uh, summarily, um, <laughs> well, they were told their military careers were going nowhere after Alexander Vindeman um, basically ratted on Trump when Trump tried to extort Ukrainian President Zelensky, was uh, willing to give him all the aid that the Congress had set, had set aside and voted on for Ukraine. But you know what? The aid will show up. But you know what I'd really like you to do? I'd really like you to announce. You don't even have to do it. Just announce that you're going to investigate Joe Biden. That's all you have to do. And then, man, oh, man, I'll make sure that aid gets to you lickety split. Alexander Vindeman got off the call and was like, can't do that. And... um And that became the first Donald Trump impeachment. Donald Trump, of course, though, had a say in military promotions. And um, Alexander Vindeman and his brother Eugene were pretty much told their military careers were over and they both left. Eugene Vindeman, though, has... um, Decided he wasn't quite done with government. Might have been done with the military, but it wasn't quite done with government. And he is going to be running for Congress in Virginia. Remember what just happened? November 7th in Virginia. 
when Governor Glenn Youngkin, in a thinly veiled hope that um, a presidential campaign would result, asked the voters of Virginia on November 7th to give him a majority in, they call it the House of Delegates, it's like state reps, and then the Virginia State Senate. And um, far from giving him a majority in both houses, they gave Democrats both houses in what was a clear repudiation of Governor Youngkin and his promise to ban abortion if he uh, had the legislative power to do it. Uh, So Virginia's looking a little good for Democrats right now, and I'm glad to see them taking advantage of it. Uh, In other news, I... uh, You know, I'm starting to feel about Joe Manchin the way I feel about Mike Johnson and Donald Trump. Do I really want to give them any airtime? Do I? My hope is that Manchin comes to his senses. Manchin has been, first of all, he was courted by Mitch McConnell, who desperately wanted Joe Biden Uh, Joe Biden's most conservative Democrat in the Senate to switch from a D to an R. Mitch McConnell tried very hard behind the scenes to get Joe Manchin to switch parties. Manchin didn't do it. Not that not that he was a real help to any of the Democrats in the Senate. But uh, he announced he's not running for re-election in West Virginia, but he is not finished with politics and he's going to tour the country and talk to people and find out what they want because he thinks there's an awful lot of people like him. In other words, he's going to see if he can get an enthusiastic response. And if he can, he will run for president under the no labels, which is a thinly veiled offshoot of the Republican Party. So Joe uh, Manchin thinks that President Biden has been dragged to the left. And, you know, that's certainly not the case. That is certainly not the case with Joe Manchin. Nobody is dragging him to the left, (laughs) you think? West Virginia, with one of the highest child poverty rates in the nation, and uh, Joe Manchin voting against the government programs that had previously eased those numbers. Yeah, he's a he's a stand up guy. Kids can can be live in poverty and not have enough to eat, but man, he's tooling around in his when he's not in his houseboat, he's in his Maserati. Anyway, I digress. Um, he has said he's not going to run for re-election. He has not officially announced that he is leaving the Democratic Party. But, um, you know, this is one of those deals like where, you know, somebody's going to run for president, but they're not they they want to have the big announcement with all the balloons and the fanfare. So they don't want to give away the store when they're being interviewed by a reporter so they get real coy. Oh, I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. You know, you'll be the first to know. 
Joe Manchin sat down with CNN's Caitlin Collins, who asked him if he was leaving the Democratic Party. Listen to this. Are you going to leave the Democratic Party? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know if I've ever, I've never considered myself a Washington Democrat. I've been a very independent person, and I don't really think Does that, that, that sound, should have... That sounds like you're well, leaving. Well, no, you have a D or an R by your name or an I by your name. It shouldn't identify who you are. If you change who you are because you change, you have a D, then you have an R, or you have an I, people go back and forth. It's more for the person's political, I think, than more for who the person is. No matter what I have by me, I'm an independent thinking. I vote independently, and I've always done that for 40 years. So... We'll see. I know what you're saying, but we'll see. I don't. I haven't gotten there yet. But you're still considering that. Sure, sure. You always consider that. Absolutely. Is it you likely know, that you're going to win I'm, the Democratic Party? And, and I'm sure they'd be happy. They might throw me out. So who knows? They might, might do me a favor. I don't know. Oh, is you know, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Yes, he's going to leave the Democratic Party if. Like Donald Trump, he decides it is the best thing for Joe Manchin at that moment in time. If it looks like no labels can provide him with the profile and the funding to run for president, he will do that. Mark my words. And if down the road he says, you know what, I think that I will just find other ways to be of service, then you know darn well he either felt that the... um the votes weren't there or the money wasn't there. Speaking of money, Ken, Ken Griffin, remember Ken Griffin, who had a little bit of a spat with uh, J.B. Pritzker and picked up all of his toys and sold his half a dozen um, condos and townhouses and multi-million dollar this and that so he could go down to Florida where Ron DeSantis would appreciate him. And he was an early supporter of Ron DeSantis for president. And then, and then Ron DeSantis, being Ron DeSantis, pretty much uh, blew it. And uh, Ken Griffin said that he was going to um, hold off on his contributions for a while. Well, now he's making noises that he's going to maybe put some money behind Nikki Haley. <laughs> Good for you, Ken. Good for you. You know, Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin spends more money on political candidates than you and I are going to see in a very long time in our paychecks. But um, I wonder if he ever regrets leaving um, Illinois in such a snit. Eh. I don't know. He could have been a kingmaker if DeSantis just simply had been a different person. Good doing your due diligence, Ken, before you put money behind that, loser. So if he does put a lot of money behind Nikki Haley, what will that accomplish? Will she be a viable alternative to Trump? Doesn't seem likely. Doesn't seem likely that she'd be a viable alternative nor even likely that she would be a vice presidential pick. She's just not loyal enough. I don't know. You know what? When you're that rich, you got money to waste, so why not? Right? Why not? Um, Governor Pritzker today, 
talked uh, about the migrant crisis. 24,000 and climbing. Not the number of Ukrainians, that's 30,000, but they've been absorbed uh, quite readily into our system because they have family, because they have a social structure, because of the Ukrainians that already live here. Uh, but the Venezuelans are having a lot harder time integrating. There are more than 24,000 Venezuelan migrants right now, a number that Governor Pritzker said is going to grow. We're going to hear some of what Governor Pritzker had to say about that today when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. On WCPT 820. Oh, I, I think I forgot to mention, you know, we, you know uh, Joe Manchin said he's not going to seek re-election. And I know you've been on the edge of your seat. George Santos, the Republican congressman from New York, has also announced that he is not going to seek re-election. And I don't know, maybe it has something to do with the 56-page report uh, from the uh, Ethics Commission. Uh, George Santos likely violated federal law by using campaign funds for personal purposes, defrauded donors, filed false or incomplete campaign finance and financial disclosure reports, among other things. And, oh, by the way, uh, we are the House, House Ethics Committee, but... We're going to share the findings from our investigation with the DOJ. Okay? All right? I knew you were waiting for that one. Back to Governor Pritzker. Uh, Governor Pritzker uh, today made um, a big speech. He was announcing a program to improve the emergency response that we are making to asylum seekers uh, he's going to look at the data. He's going to find more state money. He has, he is a man with a plan. And today, uh, this morning, actually, he made a big, uh, announcement about all the different aspects of his, of his plan. His plan is three pronged when it comes to dealing with, um, asylum seekers and migrants. We're going to welcome them. We're going to shelter them. And then we are going to foster their independence. He also talked about how uh, we were going to be investing dollars, many dollars, um, $160 million to start in programs to get um, these three stages of his plan uh, moved forward. He talked today about the, the money he's going to spend investing in this situation. Listen to this. To get people off the streets as we head into winter, the state of Illinois will invest an additional $160 million via the Department of Human Services specifically to address these bottlenecks, providing support to improve every stage of the asylum seeker resettlement journey. We'll call the three stages welcome, shelter, and independence. First, welcome. A portion of new arrivals don't need shelter as they have friends or family members here in Illinois or do not have Illinois as their final destination. Unfortunately, these individuals have often not been identified on the front end, and instead of moving on as they had originally intended, they end up in shelters where they unnecessarily take up capacity and resources. 
To address this, we're investing $30 million to establish a large intake center, growing the city's capacity to centrally welcome and comprehensively coordinate new arrivals' needs, including prioritizing onward movement in the pipeline. This investment will ensure both a more integrated approach across state, county, city, and CBO providers, but also, more immediately, divert new arrivals from shelters to their final destination, thereby improving available shelter capacity. Okay. Welcome, shelter independence. And you heard the governor refer there uh, to the bottlenecks that are creating problems in the system. This is uh, taking place at stage one, the welcome. Uh, He said overall today the process is working, but there are bottlenecks, and the bottlenecks are what are creating the situation of people living in police stations and in tents outside of police stations. And the people who are still trying to shelter at O'Hare Airport So he talked specifically about the welcome and the bottlenecks therein. Listen to this. Nearly 12,500 individuals have moved through the welcome process and are now in some form of city of Chicago shelter where they receive state funded casework, housing assistance and various other forms of support. But there are bottlenecks in the city's pipeline and people get stuck. That's a major reason that you're seeing people living outside of police stations. Because of physical capacity constraints at city shelters, approximately 2,500 people are stuck at O'Hare in police stations and elsewhere in tents outside. Bottlenecks are compounding the city's problem. If you can't get to a shelter, you can't access the casework and receive the support necessary to get to independent living. The ultimate goal is for asylum seekers to reach independence. And that happens when people are able to get through this pipeline as quickly as possible. Governor Pritzker today talked about this whole situation and how it, you know, he's pretty much saying what we've been saying, that the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. You may have heard or read in the in the news where um I don't know, I guess we're not going after Greg Abbott by name, but uh if buses come with migrants to the Chicago area and they don't arrive in an approved window and at an approved location those bus drivers and those bus companies are going to be facing legal action. Um, He talked a little bit today, among other things, about Governor Abbott and how his efforts are little more than a political stunt designed to gum up the works of the system and sow chaos. But You know, I'm glad he called him out by name. Listen to what uh, Governor Pritzker had to say about Governor Abbott. In August of 2022, the first bus of newly arrived asylum seekers reached the city of Chicago, sent by Governor Abbott of Texas to sow chaos. They uh, were dropped off with no warning and no coordination. 
It was and remains a callous effort to play politics with people's lives. But here in Illinois, we did what was right. We welcomed them. We swiftly organized to find shelter and food and the care that they needed to get on their feet. In the months since, the number of new arrivals seeking shelter has grown to over 24,000 people, a number we expect to continue to rise. Alongside our local partners, we have taken an unprecedented humanitarian response to meet this moment. From the state, that has meant hundreds of millions of dollars in state funding for shelter, staff, food, health care, transportation, rental assistance, direct funding to the city of Chicago, and more. It's what has been required to meet this moment. And at the state level, we are clear-eyed about the challenges that lay ahead for Chicago. Definitely big challenges ahead. One of the things that Governor Pritzker said today was that um, we here in the state of Illinois are being forced to solve a federal sized problem. But right now. It's us or it's nobody. We are going to take a break when uh, when we come back, we are going to uh, switch into the rest of our program today, we're going to talk a little bit about well, what is going on in Israel. We're going to speak with the uh, bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. We're joined now by Alex Trayman, who's a Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate and an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. As your position of bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, you must be overwhelmed now with uh, the the coverage that um, that you are being required to provide. Can you bring us up to speed on the very latest of the situation in Israel and Gaza? Sure. Right now, uh, what is really at this moment, right, even before this, uh, I jumped onto this call, you know, we're trying to sort out whether um, as many as 100 bodies were found in a building next to the Al-Shifa hospital. Uh, we have it confirmed that one of them was 65-year-old uh, hostage, uh, Yehudi Weiss, uh, from Kibbutz Berry in the south, but it is believed that there might have been as many as 200 other bodies found uh, and possibly that uh, could be many hostages among them. There were also reports that um, inside the main hospital in Gaza that Israeli defense forces found evidence that indeed Hamas had been using the hospital as some kind of a base. Can you tell us what you know about that? Well, for weeks, uh, the IDF had been making the case that Hamas was using the Al-Shifa hospital as one of its uh, command and control centers uh, deep in Gaza City in the northern Gaza Strip. And uh, they did go in uh, 
after announcing that they would over a period of days, they finally went in uh, in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. Um, we've seen videos uh, with IDF spokespersons, and they've also brought in uh, Fox journalists and BBC journalists into the basement. We've seen uh, what looks to be weapons that were left there, but uh, probably much of the weaponry, which was uh, believed to have been within the hospital, it the hospital, um, either via the doors, which were left open uh, for patients and doctors and anybody else to go into the hospital under civilian cover, and also through the tunnels, which are all around the and potentially below the hospital as well. For some people, this information seems uh, to have been a surprise, and I don't really understand why that is, since it is very publicly acknowledged by very many people, not all of whom are reporters, that this is how Hamas operates. <clears throat> they hide their material, they hide their personnel in places that are surrounded by, filled by civilians. When are people finally going to take that bit of information in? You know, it, it, it's hard to understand. I know that it's a very uh, politically charged conflict, obviously, and has been uh, for decades, really. Um, but, you know, Hamas, at the end of the day, is, is a horrific terror organization. It's really been holding the people of Gaza hostage uh, since 2006, 2007, when they took over the Strip. Uh, they know they can't defeat the IDF in a war. The IDF is one of the strongest militaries in the entire world uh, with significant air power, air power and, and really precise military equipment. So so how do they do they hope to win a war? And, and part of the way they, they hope to, to win is in the battle of of uh, narrative warfare and psychological warfare, and that's delegitimizing Israel. So the way that they do that is that they hide among civilians in actual hopes that the maximum number of civilian casualties will be inflicted by the IDF, and that's also why they hide inside hospitals and mosques and schools, and they put the IDF in a difficult situation as to whether or not to attack, bomb, or enter into mosques schools and hospitals, uh, because when when they do that, then the international community and, and others that really are not interested in, in looking deep and identifying the facts uh, will we'll say Israel is a Israel is a immoral for attacks hospitals and kills civilians. I agree with you that Hamas is uh, taking the Palestinian people and everybody else they can find in Gaza, any resident of Gaza. As a, as a potential shield or hostage. And yet in elections not all that long ago, uh, a couple of representatives from Hamas were voted into office. Am I misunderstanding something? Uh, is that a different part of Hamas? Is there a military wing and a governmental political wing? Did the people not understand who they were voting for? People understand very well who Hamas is. It's in their charter. You know, they, they have never tried to hide you know, what their intentions were with regard to, to attacking Israel and, and trying to remove Israel off the face of the map. Um, and they voted in Hamas in elections in 2006. Um, and there's no difference between the military bureau of Hamas and the, and the political bureau of Hamas. So, for example, when you're hearing from the Gaza Health Ministry 
They say that uh, at this point, I think they're reporting that over 11,000 people have been killed inside the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Health Ministry is an organ of Hamas. This this is Hamas. Yeah. Hamas is both the political and the military. And I've been... And, and know, there's also... Yeah. When we first started getting numbers from the health ministry, there were reporting outlets that said, here's the numbers from the health ministry, but you should know that this is a Hamas-controlled organization. So, and, and yet now, as this has, um, story has been ongoing, I no longer see many of those disclaimers, but we need to remember where this information is coming from to be able to put it into context and to be able to perhaps at times be skeptical of the figures that were being given. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, well, I, I think that you're right. And, and, but, you know, even if you would take the maximum number right now that the uh, Gaza health ministry is reporting, let's say 11,000 people, you're not, you're not being told within that number if that is the uh, a correct number, which really can't be verified. But you're not being told how many of those 11,000 uh, are Hamas operatives that were you know, involved in direct fighting or shootouts with the IDF when they were killed. Uh, you're not told within that number how many people were killed by what's been reported to be as many as 900 rockets that were fired from the Gaza Strip toward Israel that misfired, that landed inside the Gaza Strip, uh, how many of those rockets may have killed. Um, so we, you, it's not uh, for certain that the, the number that they're reporting even refers to, to citizens or citizens that were killed by the IDF, you know, and, and in, in addition to that, um, you know, it's it even if that number was the correct number, considering that Hamas is hiding its its militants and it's all of its military infrastructure under civilian infrastructure under civilian uh, houses and mosques and schools and, and, and the like, uh, the amount of effort that the IDF has is, is gone to to reduce the number of civilian casualties, you could only imagine another military, if they would have come through in a similar situation, uh, there probably would have been exponentially more people killed. It's, it's really people don't understand how surgically the IDF is going in uh, in order to try to separate uh, the militants uh, from the civilians there. It really if you I think if you're paying attention, which I don't think most people do, you can get a you can get a feel for that. The other thing I want to ask you about is there was, of course, a big demonstration at the National Mall on Tuesday, a big rally in support of Israel and also not just in support of Israel, but also to condemn the anti-Semitism that seems to have erupted in the wake of a terrorist attack on Israeli civilians. Were you shocked by the wave of anti-Semitism that came in the wake of an attack on Israel? Well, the reason why I'm not shocked is because we've actually been seeing this uh, anti-Semitism simmering, really, I would say, for as many as, as two decades or, or more. It started on the university campuses with the Israel apartheid weeks uh, that were taking place you know, as, as, all, as long as 20 years ago. 
Uh, you know, we've seen in, on social media and in the comments below articles on YouTube and Yahoo News, even in the 90s, you know, there would just be a, a lot of latent anti-Semitism. Um, and so this has really just been continuously boiling to the surface and, and almost waiting for an event like this to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, in a way, it's it's a bit of a shock to see how quickly it is it has ramped up to this very high level, uh, not just in the United States, but even around the world. I was talking to uh, last month uh, to somebody from the um, um, from the ADL and Anti Defamation League, and they said that any time, any time, basically anything happens to put Israel or or Jews in the in the spotlight in the in the media spotlight, you can count on an uptick in anti-Semitism. Last I saw, the um, um, they were reporting over an over 600% increase in anti-Semitic acts, vandalism, and speech since October 7th. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but that just breaks my heart. Well, I mean, more than break your heart, I think we have a situation in which it's it's really becoming dangerous for for Jews in the United States, you know, particularly in university campuses, particularly in, in inner cities where, where crime is on the rise uh, in general and hate crimes are on the rise in general. Uh, the situation for, for Jews living living in America, you know, is, is quickly turning toward the situation as it is in Paris and, and other cities. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's more than sad. I think people really have to, to take stock of what's happened. And, and unfortunately, they have to take precautions to protect uh, Jewish institutions and protect themselves as well. Right after the October 7th um, terrorist attacks, you know, I reached out to my Jewish friends and wanted to know if they were OK, most of whom really appreciated just kind of touching base. But since then... Just I feel sort of helpless. I feel like this is a problem that's bigger than one person. So tell me, Alex, what can one person do to make this situation better? Well, that, that's a tricky question. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, unity is very important. And you see so much disinformation uh, flying on, on social media. And, you know, obviously, you have an incredible platform, which you're using now to get some of this information uh, to light. And I think that that's really what has to happen here is just as much information has to get spread and, and we should talk to each other and, and and tell them about who's on the, the side of morality and who's on the side of immorality uh, in this battle. Um, standing together with Israel in, in visible ways is is very useful, uh, I think, toward for the people of Israel to see that, that they're being supported so they don't feel isolated in this moment. Um, and also, uh, you know, just to, to recognize that a lot of divisiveness, uh, probably, you know, political divisiveness and, and other divisiveness has, has led the enemies of uh, the Jewish people in the West to, to think that that the West and Israel are, are vulnerable. Right now, and so uh, you know, I, I think that there's some sort of uh, reckoning needs to take place, you know, and to try to uh, to try to to ask ourselves whether all of this uh, political divisiveness that's kind of like uh, um, invading our societies, if if that's uh, not weakening us to to a large extent in the in the eyes of enemies that seek to destroy our cultures. 
Um, we have to take a break, but when we come back, um, Tom Hartman, who's the host before me, he was interviewing a reporter who was in Ukraine talking, had been in Ukraine a year ago, was in Ukraine now and was talking about the differences. And one of the things that he commented on was that when he was in Ukraine a year ago, it was filled with reporters from all over the world. And he said that that's one of the things that most jumped out at him was that there were all the reporters from Ukraine had moved uh, on to Israel. And it was there was speculation that Putin may have um, been supportive of Hamas for just that reason to sort of take the heat off of him. Uh, you mentioned politics. I want to get into more of the politics of the what's going on in the world and what's going on in Israel. I'm speaking with Alex Trayman, who's the Jerusalem bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Alex Trayman, who is the Jerusalem bureau chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. And I was talking about how on Tom Hartman's show today, a reporter in Ukraine said that there were no more reporters in Ukraine that he was running around, uh, you know, not seeing anybody anywhere because they'd all moved on to Israel, which they felt that was something that if he hadn't directly engineered it, Putin, by supporting Hamas, was certainly pleased to have the world's uh, eyes and ears looking in a different direction for a while. What to talk about that relationship between Putin and Hamas and what there is to be gained by either side? Well, I think you're right that uh, Vladimir Putin is one of the primary beneficiaries of this conflict that really otherwise benefits not. Um, you know, for a while, it, it's actually a pretty complex story because uh, for when the United States you know, really moved out of the Middle East and Syria was in a civil war. There was a vacuum that was created for power and uh, Vladimir Putin filled in that vacuum and, and they had uh, troops on the ground inside Syria. And the other force that was inside Syria was was Iran. Uh, and the IDF, of course, didn't want uh, Iran to be transferring uh, weapons across Iran through Iraq, uh, through Syria, and into southern Lebanon, and get into the hands of Hezbollah. So they would be attacking, the IDF would, inside Syria when these movements would take place, and they continued to do that. Um, and in order for, for the IDF to operate in, in southern Syria, they had to have deconfliction mechanisms together with uh, Russia, with Vladimir Putin, because there was actually an incident at one point where where Syrian air defenses shot down a Russian plane, believing that it was an IDF plane. You know, so there was a relationship that was that was developed uh, of sort of mutual respect between Israel and Russia. Not that it was an alliance, but that there was an understanding uh, there and. Vladimir Putin had even visited Israel. Um, once the Russia-Ukraine war began, uh, Israel was under a lot of pressure from the United States and Europeans to side uh, with Ukraine, which it, of course, from a moral perspective, agreed with completely. Yet from a national security perspective, 
was hesitant because they understood that they needed this freedom of operation to move in Syria as a national security concern. Uh, yet they did, they were pressured to, to side with uh, with Ukraine, and they did. Um, and as a result, uh, the, the relationship between Russia and Israel soured. Uh, not only that, but that Iran... Uh, has actually cozied up to Russia since the war has began, and we've seen uh, that Iran has provided uh, drones and other weaponry uh, to the Russians as well as energy. Uh, so we're seeing this uh, Russia, which was kind of uh, playing a more neutral role in the Middle East, has closely aligned itself with Iran, which is the main uh, funder of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. While we're talking about politics, one of the things that shocked me in the immediate wake of the terrorist attack was how so many people seemingly could not separate their feelings about the Netanyahu government with whether or not civilians deserved to be raped and murdered, which I just thought was staggering in an inability to chew gum and walk at the same time. I do uh, think, I mean, I've never been a fan of Benjamin Netanyahu, but that doesn't mean that I have any any sympathies at all for the terrorists who committed these horrible attacks on what were 90, 95% just as civilians. Talk to me about the Netanyahu government, how you see it functioning now, and whether or not you think he can survive this in the long, in the long run. Sure. You know, Netanyahu is certainly the most polarizing figure in Israel today. I mean, he's been Israel's longest serving prime minister, 16 years in office. Um, even though he he's strongly considered to be a right wing prime minister, he's been very um, risk averse when it comes to military operations. In fact, many people in Israel are now blaming him uh, for signing various ceasefire agreements with Hamas uh, over the years, allowing uh, Qatari funding to come in to Gaza to fund Hamas, you know, all that was allowed by Netanyahu because he, he tried to avoid the conflict that uh, Israel's currently engaged in. Um, inside Israel right now, people, you know, are are asking a lot of questions about how the massacre on October 7th could have possibly happened, you know, both from the point of view of Israel's superior intelligence, which should have led uh, security officials to to understand that an attack this large was being planned right under their nose, uh, but even more so how once the the border was breached in the morning of October 7th, why it took security forces so many hours uh, to get to the south um, and, and to allow for so many people to have been killed and to allow for 240 hostages to have been taken back across the Gazan border. Um, you know, that said, there is a feeling that uh, Netanyahu is probably the best man to lead the country through this conflict. And we've seen, you know, President Joe Biden and uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and many other leaders coming through, all of them taking meetings with Netanyahu, uh, while at the same time the prime minister has to lead the IDF into battle. And so far, uh, the the military campaign has been 
extremely successful by all accounts. And not to say that this war is over. It may not even be halfway over. We don't really know. But uh, so far, the military campaign inside Gaza has been extremely successful. I think for Netanyahu to survive politically, his only choice is to have a conclusive win, so conclusive and comprehensive that all sides, both the Israeli public and Hamas, understand that Israel won this war. I think you'd have to have like an unconditional surrender from Hamas at the end of this. Uh, I think if, if Netanyahu delivers anything less than a, a comprehensive victory, um, yeah, I think it's likely that his political career could come to an end. We, uh, on this radio station, We talk about the 2024 elections coming up in this country and how we can prepare for misinformation and disinformation. But we saw a preview, if you will, when the October 7th terrorist attack occurred. I can't remember if it was a week or two later. Um, I saw a video on social media that was posted of a young woman. Uh, I don't want to, you know, say that I think that college students have a lot to learn, but she was a a young woman who appeared to be of college age, and she was in London, and she was taking down flyers that had the faces and names of those who had been taken hostage. And the person shooting the video walked up to her and said, why are you doing that? And she said, because this is all a lie. These people haven't been. This is all a lie. This is all propaganda. These people have not been taken by Hamas. What do you do in the face of something like that? Yeah, I think it goes to what, what, the way you frame the question, which is uh, the way information flies on social media right now. And, uh, and, and also due to a lot of distrust in, in mainstream media, you know, people get information and they just run with it. And they, they let themselves be informed by tweets and by TikTok videos. Um, and, and people take their decisions on the basis of, you know, unbelievable lies. I, I mean, I, I think that, that people don't really understand Israel and Israelis. Um, and, you know, people can think what they want about the Netanyahu government or the IDF, but the people of Israel are are beautiful people. And there are so many families right now that have been torn to pieces, you know, with, with over 1,200 people killed. Thousands of people injured. Nobody's even talking about the injured. And, and of course, 240 families uh, that have loved ones uh, in in limbo right now, potentially held hostage in Gaza or elsewhere. It's 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 really a, it's a dangerous situation that we we live in, where where you know the most basic black and white information uh, gets completely distorted and misinterpreted. Yeah, it's it feels like. When something like this occurs, it feels like we're fighting not only the actual conflict, but we're fighting all these uh, social media uh, information and disinformation wars as well. Sometimes I know it, it's it's overwhelming. Uh, Alex, thank you, know, you but so not, much. It, Go it's ahead. not all. Oh, you're welcome. I was Go just going to say it's not only social media because you know on October 17th, Hamas reported that Israel struck a hospital yes. in the Gaza Strip and 500 were killed. And you know immediately the BBC, CNN, the Associated Press, Reuters, and others all reported that the IDF had killed 500 people in a hospital. And yep. you know, sure enough, within within an hour, it, it came out the IDF had had very explicit proof that it was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket that was fired towards Haifa that that completely misfired. 
But not only did it misfire and hit the hospital complex, it didn't even hit the building of the hospital. It hit the parking lot of the hospital, uh, and it hit the parking lot of the hospital after midnight, and it's certain that nowhere near 500 people were killed. You know, but so... You know, when, but the problem with that is is that when the mainstream media will report uh, misinformation, they just took Hamas at their word. They didn't bother to verify mm-hmm. it. You know, it everybody wants to, to be first. Alex, got to be first right. with the story. Don't no, we can't hold back and wait till it's confirmed because everybody else will have the story and we won't have it. Yeah, it's a real. It's we've got to temper that urge to be first with a stronger urge to be right. And um, and I think that's really good advice, Alex. Um, we have to break uh, our uh, interview right now. We have to go to news. Uh, I'm speaking with Alex Trayman, and I really appreciate your time, Alex. He is the Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Ian. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. I am pleased to uh, welcome back our Union Strong segment. Uh, today, we are introducing you to Dan Leckie an investment executive at Megant Financial. Dan, how are you? Welcome to being on the radio today. I'm doing great, Joan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. Well, good. We're excited to have you, too. You know that we're tired of that, Ron Whittingham. You can just tell him to take a few weeks off. Yeah, we already sent him home. <laughs> oh, that, that's good to know. Uh, for those of our for those of our listeners who wonder what a financial company has to do with our union strong segment, where we talk about usually the trade unions, explain exactly what Megan Financial is and what you guys do. Sure thing. So Megan Financial, we're a full service financial firm. So at the core. We're all financial advisors. We help people plan and prepare and live through retirement. But we have a very unique niche in the fact that we really only work with union members. Um, and we educate them on their pensions and other benefits that they have, getting them prepared for their retirement. So it's a unique way of doing things because we have such a specific audience that we're targeting that it allows us to really understand what they have and be able to convey those benefits to them via educational seminars and one-on-one meetings. So when you say that you only work with union members, does the actual union, like the Roofers Local 11, do they hire Megan Financial um, and then provide your services to their members? Is that how it works? So all our services to the unions that we work with are free. Um, the union doesn't pay Megan. Megan doesn't pay the union. The members don't have to pay anything. We are a, a free resource provided by the union. Um, we do work with the roofers and will participate in their retirement educational seminars. And then at the end of the seminars, members are able to turn in um, evaluation sheets. And on those evaluation sheets, they'll check. We'd like to have somebody from Megan give us a call and 
after the seminar, we'll sit down with them at their kitchen table. We'll sit down with them in one of our three offices, and we'll go through the benefits as it applies to their specific numbers. Because when we're doing the seminars, we're we're really looking at, at kind of an average member of that union. So it gives them an idea of what they have, but not specifically for themselves as they prepare for retirement. What do you cover in these seminars, the the seminar that everybody's invited to? So we start with the pensions. And, you know, every every union has a pension. That's kind of a, the core benefit. Some unions have more than one pensions. Unions have health insurance benefits that are included in their retirement package. Uh, most of them have a 401k or retirement type account associated in that package. So we go through the seminar and we educate them on each of the pensions that they have, uh, the rules and kind of idiosyncrasies of how those are going to work when they do retire, uh, what their spousal benefits are. And, And a spousal benefit is just simply a union member has a pension and they can choose to take a reduction of, you know, X percentage. And when the union member passes, their spouse will receive whatever percentage of the benefit for the rest of their life. So we really work to prepare them for what these pensions have inside and what's going to be available to them when they retire. We'll talk about their death benefits, health insurance. Uh, we have a segment on, you know, their 401k and the best way to go about accessing and, and using that and, and what fits. And uh, we talk about financial planning and when you should start that and, and what makes sense for each member. As part of a different conversation about Social Security, I was talking to financial columnist Terry Savage earlier in the week. And she said that there was a bill moving through Congress, the Social Security Fairness Act, that would do away with something called offsets. Like if you're a teacher and you retire and you get a teacher's pension, um, that amount of money you've got coming in by law has to be um, considered when you get your Social Security payment, which is usually reduced because you're already getting a pension. Are the kinds of pensions that union people get, are they subject to these offsets? Uh, And this, by the way, this House bill would do away with this. It's called because it just they're saying it's just not it's not fair to penalize somebody. Basically, you paid into Social Security. You should get money out of Social Security, regardless of whether or not you've got a pension. For sure. And and we do run into it when we do work with teachers. I mean, we focus on labor unions, but we will work with anyone, union member families, and we get a lot of referrals and a lot of teachers. But, yeah, that act, that rule, it, it really does reduce a teacher's or a municipal employee's pension. Fortunately, with the labor unions that we work with, not pension, Social Security, but the labor unions we work with, they're not subject to that. So they get their pensions in full and they get their full Social Security benefits as well. I see. You said uh, you would also work with with teachers. Can anybody who's a union member reach out to Megan or are there only certain union uh, 
people that you work with? Anybody could reach out to us. You know, our specialty is the labor unions, but we have a lot of teachers. Um, A couple of our advisors on staff are also Chicago firefighters. So they've been working a lot with some firefighters and Chicago police. So we're very well versed when it comes to pensions as a whole, no matter what union you may belong to. Um, You know, it just takes a little research and understanding the specifics that go along with said pension. I see. I see. Um, So I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA. If I wanted to sit down with Megan Financial, could I do that? Or would you have to familiarize yourself with all the permutations of my particular union and its retirement benefits? So, uh, yes to both of the questions. You know, we'd be happy to sit down with you and take a look at at your pensions and see what you're looking at when you're ready to retire and how the rules are going to work with that. At this stage, it doesn't take us very long to get familiar with a union's pension. We know what we're looking for. We know where to find the information. So we could really sit down with anyone, whether it's in, you know, SAG or, you know, Chicago teachers or, you know, any type of union we have the ability to work with just because of the understanding of how the pensions work and how they benefit the members. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Dan uh, Leckie, an investment executive at Megan Financial. This is our sponsored Union Strong segment, and uh, we are going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular monthly Union Strong segment. Dan Leckie is here. He's an investment executive at Megan Financial. Megan Financial works with a lot of unions, particularly trade unions, to help people plan for their retirement, plan for their future. Dan, talk about the differences in financial planning for a union member versus a non-union member. Absolutely. Um, a couple a couple different factors come into play. And for somebody like me and essentially 95% of Americans, we don't have a pension, which is a guaranteed source of income. We have Social Security. And so in my case, I have to maximize my Social Security benefit and most likely wait longer to turn it on because it's my only guaranteed source of income. I have to rely on my nest egg, whatever I'm able to save or put in my 401k, that's going to be my supplement in retirement for me to be able to to live, you know, the lifestyle that I'd like to at that stage of my life. When union members come into the play, they have these pensions. And in most cases, the pensions are more than their Social Security income. So Social Security almost acts as a supplement to the pensions. So what you tend to find is the union members are in a great situation with their retirement income, and then most of them have a 401k or a retirement plan attached to their union plan. And so they have this separate nest egg that, you know, we like to recommend that they use to go do fun stuff in retirement, whether it's travel or, you know, buy a lake house, take the grandkids to Disney World, whatever it may be. 
Um, and, and they don't have to, to wait as long to turn social on. They, you know, there's there's just not as much need to rely on Social Security as there is for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when should you start financial planning? And I know it's real easy to say, well, start at the beginning of your career. But let's face it, a lot of people just starting out, you know, they can barely cover rent and car insurance and you know, car upkeep and, you know, getting food on the table. So when do you really need to get started and what's the best way to get started? It's such a good question and it's such a a tough question. A few years ago, we actually started uh, implementing seminars for apprentices of some of the unions that we work with. And we're just trying to give them some basic education you know, it's really hard to tell a 20-something-year-old, you need to save $20,000 a year. It's, you know, going to go in one year and out the other. But I usually suggest that members start planning, you know, once they get into their, their 50s, their mid-50s. Now, a lot of members will wait till they're in their 60s and close to retirement. It's completely up to them. A a lot of this is going to be predicated on health insurance and when they're able to retire. But I always think it's going to be better to kind of have a calculation of what the pension is going to look like, what Social Security is going to look like, what the nest egg is going to look like. And that way, if you need to make any adjustments to your spending or, you know, changes here or there, it gives you time to make sure that when you do come to that retirement date, that you're prepared and you're going to be okay with the income that you have coming in and the nest egg that you have saved. So it becomes very individual specific, but I always think the earlier, the better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can understand if you're in a trade union and you have a pretty clear idea of what money you're going to make, how long you're going to make it, and where you're going to be, you know, 20 years out or whatever your retirement goal is. But for those people who don't work in a trade union, you know, who have a job, but maybe what was it I read um, fairly recently? You know, my dad's generation, my dad worked his entire career for Sears. He took his first job getting out of college, working for Sears. He worked up through the ranks and he retired working for Sears. But nobody does that anymore. You know, I was reading that the average young person changes jobs, you know, like every two or three years. How do you plan for retirement if that's the case? I mean, that is such a great question because it is such a different world and it is about so much since. We've grown up and come through this. You know, I was always conditioned that you kind of work at one place and that's where you you start and finish or it's it's a couple of moves. You know, I know you've had a couple over the years, but kind of all in the same area. So when you're looking at something like that, you want to make sure that these younger kids understand that no matter where you're working, you still need to be saving you can always take a 401k when you leave a job with you and turn it into an IRA. So if we're going to be kind of moving into this era where we have so many young kids switching like that, we just want to make sure that they're, we're educating them and they're still saving for retirement. It's all going to compound on itself in the long run. 
So as long as they're putting money away for their nest egg, and their mm-hmm. nest egg is going to have to be much larger than the nest egg of a union member because of that guaranteed income pension, you know, they're going to be okay. But it is, you know, I think we're living in a different world when it comes to that. And uh, it's a challenge, but something that we're, you know, working through. And education with everything we do is really the key. Um, I, I made a guesstimate when I was when I was questioning you a minute ago that if you were a union member, you could say, well, you know, I'm going to retire in 20 years. That's is that did I did I speak correctly? Is there is there a minimum number of years that as long as you contribute at least that many years to the union, you can retire with your pension. I mean, I know that a lot of times, especially if people are in good health, they want to keep working. They like the work. Um, they're not ready to retire just yet. Um, but is that the rule uh, that there's a minimum 20 years? It depends on the union. And usually what I see is it's 10 years of vesting service with that union. Some unions will be five. Some unions can be a little more. But each union will have that rule, and it is specific to that union. Um, But one of the things we look at, like you just said, you know, people feel good. They want to keep working. Most of the union members I meet with are ready to be done tomorrow. Their bodies get beat up. Uh, they go through a lot. They're working outside in the winter. They're working outside in the summer. So a lot of the, the members I meet with are, are ready to be done. But the big determining factor is, you know, when does your pension allow you to retire without having to take a reduction? Because you could have one union that says that you can retire at age 62 without a reduction, or you can retire at age 55, but you take a 30, 36% reduction on your pension. Mm-hmm. So they have to weigh that. And then again, they have to weigh the health insurance. If, yeah. if you're 62 and you have a union that offers a, a health benefit in retirement, it makes it very feasible to make that decision as long as you have your finances in order. But if you're 62 and your pension normal age is 65, you're going to have a three-year gap until you can get to Medicare. So unless your spouse has a job that can provide health insurance or you're comfortable paying for health insurance out of pocket, it's a a really, really tough decision to have somebody retire early, you know, without that benefit. I assume when unions collect uh, union fees and whatever from their members and Obviously, they don't just let that sit. They invest that. So do stock market fluctuations have any influence or any effect on union benefits? Absolutely. And not so much with the pensions as they do with kind of the retirement aspect of their package. Like I said, most unions are going to have a defined contribution plan or a 401k where money is going into a traditional retirement plan. And many of the unions allow the members to control those investments just like, you know, you would in a normal 401k. So they can pick between, you know, X number of choices how they would like to invest their money. So the stock market and, and all the factors that go with it do have an effect on that. 
because you have your income piece and then you have that nest egg piece and you're looking for a balance between both of them as you get towards retirement. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do most of the union people you know, in addition to whatever they've got as far as union retirement, do they do outside plans as well? Do they do their own KEO? Do they do their own IRA? Some do. I would say the majority don't. The, the majority, they, they take their pensions and they take their you know retirement plan from the union. A lot of them will have spouses that have a 401k. Um, and you see a lot of people with heavy savings accounts. So the, the money is not necessarily invested in the market, but they're looking for more fixed income products like the T-bills and CDs and, and fixed income products that eliminate the risk. Just because we've been in you know, such a volatile market for the last what, year and a half. Yeah. And that's, this, this market is so strange to me because in 2020, we had the, the COVID collapse in uh, February and March of 2020, and the market went down 30%. And nobody really panicked because it happened so quick and it went away so quick. And last year, the S&P went down, what was it, 20%, and this year it's up about 16 17%. But people are very tentative and very nervous with the market with all these geopolitical issues and obviously the the dark cloud over everything for the last year has been inflation. So it, it's very interesting how people emotionally react to that just because this has gone on a little longer than what we may be used to. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you're doing really good work. Um, I've talked to a lot of union people and nobody works harder than they do. And nobody deserves to have a solid retirement more, I think, than somebody who, like you say, uh, has a pretty tough, very physical job in many instances, not all, but in, in many instances. And uh, when is your next? Do you know when the next um, program you're going to do? Which union hall and which union? Uh, I think we're going to start back up uh, first quarter. I believe it's early February. We'll uh, be starting our seminars back up with local 134. And I know we're going to be doing uh, the brick trades, the tile, tuck pointers, uh, elevators, local 150 operators will be, uh, be involved with first quarter stagehands. So we work with quite a few unions and, you know, we just keep them scheduled and when they're ready for uh, for that education, we'll uh, we'll head over there and work with their members and make sure that they're prepared. So we're going to be, take a little bit of a break. I mean, I'm sure you. I know you're still on call, <laughs> but a little bit of break as far as the seminars until the the first quarter. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us for our Union Strong segment. It is nice to talk to you. Not that not that I and. Uh, it was I was just kidding earlier. Ron is welcome any time that he wants to come. But it is it was a very nice experience speaking with you today, Mr. Lecky. Well, thank you so much for having me. And next time maybe Ron and I can tag team it. We'll put you on speaker and we can work it together. <laughs> that would be fun. See if you can work that out and arrange that. Uh Dan Lecky is the executive at Megan Financial. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna be back with 
a new book by one of the people who was defending the Capitol on January 6th. The book is called American Shield. We're going to be talking to Akalino Gonell after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There's a new book out this month called American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. Bill Luter uh, reviewed the book, oh gosh, a month or so ago, and wrote this. There are other books that give the inside perspectives into the events of January 6th, including Fanon's Hold the Line and Dunn's Standing My Ground. But what makes Gunnell's story unique is that it's told by an immigrant, someone who chose to come to this country and become a citizen and who felt personally responsible for defending the institutions of American democracy. He writes at one point, as an immigrant, I took seriously my pledge to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States against foreign and domestic threats, even if that threat was the president and the members of Congress who abetted him. The book is American Shield. Aquilino Gonell joins us now to talk about it. Thank you, Sergeant, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John. Um, you know, uh, Bill is right. We, we have read uh, different perspectives on January 6th from those who were attacked from those who put their lives on the line to defend the Capitol. But yours is different in that it is also an immigrant experience. How do you think that changed your attitude to the work you were doing defending the Capitol and what you experienced on January 6th? Uh, it's very poignant, uh, you know, when you take a look and, and into account everything that I had done uh, throughout my career and also uh, as a soldier myself uh, back in the days. Uh, I wasn't born here in this country, um, and I think that's what makes it more powerful and more compelling that I had checked each and every box of what many Republicans say a typical immigrant should look like and be, and yet uh, I had done all these things, uh, and I checked each box, and yet they still uh, demonized me. They still don't support what we did on January 6th. And, you know, last week, um, even the foreign president said that the people who assaulted us and assaulted the Capitol, there are uh, patriots and, and hostages. So meaning that we were the, the uh, hostage takers, apparently, not the defender of the capital and our democracy. You mentioned your That's- career. Tell tell my audience about your career before you came to be working at the Capitol January 6th, particularly your military service. Um, I, at age 21, I joined the military, literally like a day before, 21. Uh, and I was there, uh, and then um, um, 9-11 happened, and I joined the military because I needed a how, how to pay, figure out how to pay for my college. But uh, after 9-11, that seems irrelevant, and it was to me. Um, I felt 
that not only America was attacked, but myself. Uh, and that led me to uh, volunteer for some uh, deployments and, and, and assignments uh, to arresting uh, people uh, at the ground zero. Uh, but on, I and, and because of that, I ended up going to Iraq um, on, in 2003. I spent a year of service overseas uh, where I saw um, a lot of bad things happen, not only to me, but to my colleagues. I also saw uh, other soldiers doing bad things to the Iraqis' population. Uh, and I, uh, as I allude in, in, in my book, American Shield, uh, I also had family issues, uh, many of them that I had in adversities that I had to overcome uh, in order to be accepted, in order for me to um, find myself and my voice uh, as well. Well, I know you were born in the Dominican Republic and you came to the United States not speaking any English. What other family situations are you referring to that you had to overcome to be successful? Well, not only did I have to learn the language, but I also had to assimilate to the culture. It was a culture shock to me. Uh, my father also had a, sec- a second family that we didn't know. And later on, find out uh, after he was uh, stabbed two times, and uh, we had to deal with that ramification. Uh, we also were not well off family, so we were struggling. Uh, he was the breadwinner after he got stabbed, and we had to step it up a little bit. Uh, I helped my mom uh, sell uh, empanadas uh, door-to-door. Uh, then I became a car washer. Um, then I uh, a boy stalker, um, food stalker at the bodegas. I also had to um, become become a mechanic at the flat tire tech. Uh, until I, later on, I became a security guard uh, right after nine eleven. That uh, and kind of like in a in a way that also planted a seed for me to become a police officer because I, I was like it you know being a security guard if something happened to me or if something happened to other people like I cannot defend them. And if something happened to me, then I I won't have any benefit because it's just a, a job for security, not somebody who can protect people with a gun and arrest uh, uh, anyone that evildoers. Um, so that kind of led me to to make the commitment to become a full uh, police officer as well. Tell me about your journey to being um, on the Capitol steps. January 6th, your professional journey, how you got there. Um, as I mentioned in the book, American Shield, I um, I took a trip uh, trying to avoid uh, my uh, my school work, uh, high school. Uh, at that time, I didn't. I was I was struggling with the language, with the classes. So one of the teacher uh, kind of like after talking. Uh, to me about how messed up I was doing. Uh, she sent me up uh, on the trip. That trip happened to clearly give me a, a different perspective of what I was, what was I doing. Uh, and I changed my way. Uh, to, but on that trip, I, I learned uh, a lot about the American system, about uh, the Capitol. I met a nice police officer who, 
I also instill in me the seed of, of wanting to be somebody who protected other people. And I took that to heart. And uh, from that point on, I changed my way. I, I improved my grades uh, and, and never looked back. Uh, I even made the, the, uh, the honor rolls uh, in high school again. And also in college, I made the gym list multiple times. And I graduated with honors as well. In so I part, completely changed. Yeah. <laughs> in, I, I in completely changed uh, 360. Yeah. I, I, well, you grew up and, you know, you were somebody who cared about other people. And, you know, I think eventually that affects the choices that somebody makes. Uh, in part two of your book, American Shield, you start off with uh, the events of January 6th starting at 4 a.m. when your alarm went off. It must have seemed like a normal morning. Talk about the morning before you left the house. Um, I mean, the, the book is, is it has January 6th, but it's not a, just entirely about January 6th. It's also talk about how I have shielded not only myself from a lot of things, but also my family, relatives, mm-hmm. And the public as well, both in the, as an officer and as a soldier. And on January 6th, uh, the day um, when I left to work, it seemed like a normal day, but I knew that there were a lot of threats uh, coming out, uh, given that the former president was invoking uh, people to show up uh, on January 6th uh, to stop the steal. He saw that date as the last. Um, um, chance for him to remain in power, and that's what uh, led all those people to um, to converge uh, at the Capitol. Uh, especially after he um, made that that call and, and told people to head to the Capitol and and um, you know let their voice and uh, by any means uh, be heard. Uh, and we did our best to keep everything uh, peaceful. However, they were, uh, the rioters were not peaceful towards us. Uh, and we gave them a lot of latitude in terms of when, uh, in terms of time, uh, before we made the decision that they were being uh, disrupted, they were being chaotic, uh, and also uh, that we need, needed to be um, restoring order, regardless of whether we're throwing at us, and, and that's what we did. Um, I lo- We lost the police line. Um, I was there all over the place uh, trying to coordinate, trying to um, keep my fellow officers from being injured. Uh, and those people who continue uh, to assault us, regardless whether we were in, in uniform, because I did have uh, the right gear. Uh, I was part of this civil disturbance unit, and it didn't matter whether I was in plain clothes or uniform uniform or in CVU gear, they still attack us. Uh, and these are th- those attacks were coming from the very same people that claimed to back the blue. Um, except for that day, I guess they, 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 didn't, they didn't think that blue lives matter. Blue lives matter. Uh, and, and decided to take it up on themselves to assault us multiple times, sometimes uh, me uh, 
individually, as a group, uh, simultaneously. Uh, it didn't matter, but they they didn't have our, our interest uh, to restore order because they were wanted uh, the riot to, to happen and um, injure people, chase them, hunt them room by room. Uh, I was attacked. Um, I sustained multiple injuries. The most severe ones were uh, my right foot. I had surgeries. I had eight schools in one plate. Um, after the surgery, uh, on my shoulder, I have some limitations still. Uh, and I, I'm able to do a lot of things, but not police work because at any moment you have to be ready for to make an arrest or put your hands on somebody. I'm a civilian. Um, I could walk away or at least try to walk away from it and not get involved. As a police officer, it's my duty to, to intervene. I can't do that. All they got to do is twist my my arm one way, and I'm I'm out. They commissioned. Um, I had both my hands were bleeding uh, on that day. Um, as a matter of fact, next next month I'll, I'll be in court uh, for sentencing for one the guy who hit me in my hand. Um, even even having being uh, having the, the gear. Uh, I was still injured by some of the, the hits. They grabbed anything that they could get their hands on and threw at us, flagpole, pipes, bike racks uh, that they broke down and used that as spears to throw at us and, and, and pokers with, with it, including flagpoles with the flag still attached. Um, they threw batteries uh, at us, um, um, cans of soda, full, um, frozen sodas and things like that. Um, ladder, uh, guardrails from, from, uh, from, uh, the steps that they broke down. So there's a lot of things that they, they took down from the inauguration stage that was being built and it was not completed. They took tore it down and then used those same furniture and, and, wood uh, boards and things like that to throw at us, including sledgehammers and hammers, speakers, you name it, whatever you, they got their hands on it. Um, to the point that we uh, retreated um, up to the stage, um, on top of the stage, and then even once we got there, we still retreated some more inside the building. And after we closed that that doors within a minute, they broke down that door and began to fight us. And that's when I heard uh, the call from Metropolitan Police uh, commander um, stating, we're not going to lose the Capitol. We're going to go back to all CEU. And I heard shields to the front. Uh, we need shields. We need shields. And that's what I did. Um, I happened to be one of the few officers who still had shields. Um, so when it came to the, um, to the decision to, to go to the front, I, did, I didn't hesitate uh, because I knew I was fighting for not only for my colleagues, for myself, but also for this country that had given me a lot of opportunities. And as an immigrant myself, I saw that as an, as an opportunity to continue to fight back. I didn't care about um, who was I protecting? I didn't care about 
the Democrat Republican. I care that it was an attack on us, on our uh, fellow officers, on our country. And the irony is that um, the people who were attacking were native-born, and the people, a lot of the officers who were defending it are foreigners, naturalized citizens. And that hurts. That hurts because um, a lot of time you hear the Republicans uh, say, well, there's an invasion. People, foreigners are, or, or, or immigrants are invading this country. Well, mm-hmm. last time I checked, people who were invading the capital, the people who chased them away out, out of the capital, there were Trump supporters. Uh, not Antifa, not immigrant, not Muslim, or any other group. It was Trump supporters who interrupted the Trump of power and chased them down away from the capital. Do you think, with your immigrant experience, and you said some of the other officers that day were of um, had had immigrated to this to this country, because you chose this country, it was an, a conscious act for you to say yes. This is the country that I am going to be a part of. I am going to support this country. Do you think it's possible? That maybe you care more. Sometimes when I think something's handed to somebody, when they're born to it, they don't appreciate it as much as when it's something that they actually have to work for and choose. Do you think that's the case with you? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, when, as I mentioned in the book, I almost didn't come back on one of my trips to the Republic because I felt like, I wasn't sitting right in this country. I wasn't meant to be in this country. And if it was my uh, my uh, grandfather who convinced me to return, but I was willing to give up on America. And a lot of things that we hear, well, especially when you live overseas, is America is the line of opportunity. America is the line where everybody is held accountable. And I actually bought into that. I actually bought into that. And maybe... That's one of the reasons why I joined the military. That's one of the reasons why I continue my service as a police officer. And that's one of the reasons why I continue to testify uh, and, and give my testimony to the FBI, to to the prosecutor, and also to the media whenever uh, it comes up. But I think a lot of people take the United States for granted. And we don't, because we've seen what's out there. We've seen how chaotic and pro- problematic is outside the uh, the borders of the United States. Um, I saw it firsthand because uh, I lived in a I lived in the Metropolitan as a kid, and also when I went to Iraq, I spent a year and I did the, uh, the, that deployment and watching and, and seeing the population, how they live, and all the struggle and all the things you had to go through. Uh, I don't know if uh, people can relate to that unless you mm-hmm. actually live there. And many people who were attacking the Capitol, they don't know that it's a lot worse out there. Um, and, and I don't know. It, it, it's very traumatic. Uh, I happen to have a, a, a lot of support uh, from my family and, and relatives. Um, I think uh, having that support uh, eased my trauma uh, from my PTSD, both from the military and also from Genesis. 
And I think without that, uh, I probably would would be a a statistic, kind of like why some of the other officers themselves, uh, um, they die by suicide because perhaps Mm -hmm. they couldn't uh, comprehend or go through uh, the disappointment of having the same people who we sworn to protect, that we protected, that we saved their lives on January 6th. Now I'm calling the people, the very same people who attacked us in full uniform. They call us, um, they call those people patriots, peaceful, loving, uh, political discourse. They do stuff, um, hostages, and political prisoners. Now, they wouldn't have been calling those people those names unless they were, if they were facing those people, how relentless they were, how violent they were, not only to me, but to my colleagues. Um, I had the scars, I had the videos, the pictures, I had the medical bills, I had the trauma. And for those people who we risked our lives defending, now they betray us, they desecrate our sacrifices by calling those people anything else but traitors, rioters, and insurrectionists. And there is a wishful thinking that they say, oh, these are patriots. But when they do that, or when they call them hostages, what does that make me then as a police officer, as a soldier? That makes me the bad guy of this story. Was I the bad guy? Was I the, am I the hostage taker? Or did I defend them? Did, did I defend the Capitol? Did I did I give those politicians the time to escape? Because that's what I did. Um, I, I still bothers me that some of the same same people, like Mike Pence, Jim Jordan, these are people who, have, who are material witness to the attack of January six, and especially um, Mike Pence because he knew what. Trump was planning to do on January 6th. He could have gone to the media. He could have used a tweet. He could have done anything else. And he kept it quiet until January 6th happened. And he, he put his finger up and said, let me see where the wind is going. Mm-hmm. At no point did he go to the law enforcement community and say, this is going to happen. We need to reinforce the Capitol. And then he turned around and said, you know what? Um, Trump wanted me to do this. And then he said, oh, I did my job. I kept my oath. No, he didn't. You have information. You still do have information. And you still remain quiet for your political motivation, political gain. The same thing with Jim Jordan. He was coordinating a lot of things of that day. And he's still a member of Congress, which I believe he shouldn't be under the 14th Amendment uh, insurrection uh, clause that is in there. But they're not the only one. There are others. Um, unfortunately, I think if people really pay attention, the January 6 was a lot worse because you had the next three people in the line of succession to the presidency. The vice president, along with his daughter, wife, in the nuclear codes, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate pro tem. These are the next three people in the line of succession to the presidency. If something were to happen to one of them, the former guy would have been staying in power. And he let coordinate an attack, orchestrate an attack 
on a branch of his own government. And this is a person that a lot of Republicans want back in power. What did I risk my life for then? When why when myself and other probably forty officers held down that post at the arch of the Capitol. We made our stand. We did not let anybody go through there when they were running scared, when they fear for their life. You know, two weeks ago, I think, um, Congressman Kemp, uh, Buck, he was saying, well, I'm not voting for Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House, but then I'm getting threats. My family's getting threats. Well, now you care because you are the end of the stick because you are the target of the threat. What about us when we were facing the threat? You got to go home to your safety. You got to go home to your family. We didn't. We were beat up, exhausted, tired, bleeding, bloody, crying, mutilated, and we held the line. For all of them to turn around and say nothing happened, this this was a political discourse, or it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad for who? For who? Tell that to Officer Sigmund, who died by the next day. Tell that to Michael Fanon, who ended up sustaining heart attack and other injuries. Tell that to me, who had two surgeries in months and months, almost a year and a half of recovery. And I still have recurring uh, pain on some, some, most of the time. There are other officers, officially there were 140 officers injured that day, but they were born. A lot of us, we didn't want to report our injuries, but we kept quiet. And we hoped that because the magnitude and the severity of what happened, that most of the Republicans, most of the country, most of the elected officials, they will have come together and see the threat for what it was. On January 6th, January 7th, January 10th, and 12th, and the week after, they knew who orchestrated that. They knew, and yet they stayed quiet, most of them, especially from the Republican side. Yeah. And they sided with the form of God. And Sergeant Goodnell, the- your story is just amazing. The book American Shield, the immigrant sergeant who defended democracy is also amazing. It is on sale now. Uh, this November, it has uh, just gone on sale. And um, the just listening to you, I know this is inadequate, but thank you so much for your service Throughout your life, and especially on January 6th, hearing you tell the story firsthand is really meaningful. And it it is really a day that we cannot afford to forget. Thank you for reminding us of what happened. And thank you for reminding us of your bravery and the bravery of the other officers who held the line that day. And thank you for being here. Thank you, Yuan, and I hope uh, people will take up the book and actually hear and listen and read it for firsthand of what I had sacrificed for this country 
Uh, and there are many others like me who have remained silent. I just hope that everybody appreciate and also understand the magnitude of the danger that this person, leading candidate of the United States um, from one political party, represents to not only to uh, our democracy, but for our country. The book, again, is called American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. Uh, Sergeant Aquilino Gonel, uh, I appreciate your time so much, and thank you for being here. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with uh, politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am happy now to welcome back the lovely and talented uh, editor and founder of the Picayune Sentinel, former uh, Chicago Tribune columnist, Eric Zorn. Eric, how are you? I'm good. You know, I'm probably better than ever right now because no one has ever called me lovely. <laughs> I think that's really something else. I, I am, I'm honored. I, 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 I don't even think of myself as lovely, but, but maybe you've changed all that. I think that's, well, maybe it's a new day for me here. I, I definitely think of you uh, that way. I don't know uh, when you were able to connect to the studio. I don't know if you heard any of that uh, last interview. I was interviewing Sergeant Acolino Gunnell, one of the men who was very badly hurt defending the Capitol on January 6th. He has a, he has a new book out and it's one of those interviews where you just like ask one little question and he starts telling his story and you just, it's just, I mean, I know we all saw it happening, Eric, and we experienced, um, you know, in our own homes and watching television and listening to it, we experienced the horror of it. But um, having been there and the betrayal he feels for the people who knew what was coming and didn't do anything to stop it, uh, it was just, whew, whew. It's it's horrifying. And the thing about it, I remember from that day uh, that at first I thought it was kind of almost funny at first, like that these these crazy people in their camouflage gear and their shaman costumes and so on were marching up to the Capitol. And and um, I was just like, oh, these, these feckless people are going to stand outside and make fools of themselves. And then it, it really took a, a very dark, very scary turn. Of course, we've all seen the, the footage from inside. And the more footage that you see from inside, you see, you know, these, these protesters beating up on police officers and and uh, and the, the mayhem that they were <clears throat> introducing to the scene. And it was very frightening. And I, I don't know that we even yet know how close we came to, say, having a, a member of Congress murdered. Yeah, uh, it, it seems to me like if they had gotten their hands on Nancy Pelosi, say, they might have killed her. I, I, I don't think that that's an exaggeration. You look at, at the uh, man who was convicted today of, of beating up and almost killing Paul Pelosi. Yeah, uh, these, these people are serious. It was not they weren't just protesters. They were they were bent on really causing some destruction. And I, I think we I think it was pretty much closer call than maybe even we know right now. Um, Sergeant Gunnell said next month. He's going to be in a courtroom where uh, the 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 man who injured both of his hands is going to be on trial. Um, I can't imagine what that's going to be like for him. 
but um you know i'm i'm really glad that uh that whether or not donald trump ever serves a day in jail i'm glad that this is being investigated i am glad that there have been indictments uh following this and not just you know you and i've seen this happen before where something happens and it's the the rank and file ends up going to jail and the pl- the planners and the plotters sometimes seem to skate free. And I really hope that's not the case this time. Well, what I really hope, obviously, is that <clears throat> Donald Trump isn't reelected or that a Republican doesn't become president, a MAGA Republican doesn't become president and offer blanket pardons yep. uh, and commutations to all these people. Because I, I really think that that's in the car. I think that's something that Trump would do in a heartbeat. If oh, he's, he's already said that the- he would. That's one of the first yeah. things he's going to do. And uh, and these people committed crimes. I mean, I, let's in some in some fantasy world, let's imagine that they were right about the election being overturned. That's not how we fight against elections being fraudulently run. That's not that's not how our country is supposed to work. You're not you're not allowed to do that. And to say that it's okay if your cause is just, you can beat up police officers. That is really a dangerous road to go down. But but overall, I, I think that the the point that you know I made today in a number of ways in the Picking and Sentinel, which is that it is time to start taking this threat of a fascist overthrow from this hard right element of the Republican Party seriously. Like it's no longer just kind of a, an interesting thought experiment. You listen to what Trump is saying, describing his opponents as vermin. I mean, echoing Hitler. And and I know that it's considered bad form to invoke Hitler and the Nazis. And you're supposed to, you know, the Godwin's law says if you do that, you you lose the argument because no one is as bad as Hitler. <clears throat> and of course, so far, Trump is not as bad as Hitler, but he shows a lot of signs of being uh, of, asp- of aspiring to being just that kind of awful autocrat, dictator, and someone who will gladly kill his enemies. And it isn't just the vermin comment. I saw somebody on social media took three or four different statements that Trump has made recently, and the virtually the same statement was made by Hitler. Well, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about Mark Jacob, probably, on um, on Twitter. If you're ex, excuse me, but uh, if you you follow Mark Jacob on on Um, Twitter, I not only follow Mark Jacob on Twitter, I have him on once a month with Jennifer Schulze and we talk about media and journalism. Oh, he's top drawer. Uh, Mark is uh, he's one of the Metro editors at the formerly one of the Metro editors of the Tribune and the Sun Times. And uh, in his retirement or semi-retirement, he has really flowered into a, a significant political commentator. I'm glad you have him on because uh, I think he's the one you're talking about. He went <clears throat> and reread uh, William Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and he picked passages out and compared them to things that, that Trump had been saying and doing. And the parallels are eerie and the thing that that is just confounding to me is how many you know indoor republicans knife and fork republicans the you know the people who are country club republicans the people who differ from me on on economic policy and maybe a few things on social policy but but stay you know inside the bumpers of the bowling alley here and how many of them are have, have sold their souls have joined this cult uh, of trump and and it, I just never would have expected that to happen in our country, where, where somebody who is as manifestly unfit for any public office, let alone the presidency, has seized the imaginations of so many people. 
and has <clears throat> has inspired them and and has made them so incredibly loyal. It's it's really frightening. Yeah. And he, here's sort of this is sort of tangential, but it's sort of not. I realize now that Republicans in office are just too cowardly to really stand up to Trump. They saw what happened to Liz Cheney. They saw what happened to Adam Kinzinger there. By God, it's not going to happen to them. So they're just going to if they can't come out and be vocally supportive of Trump, at the very least, they can just be quiet and hope nobody asks them any questions. But they're sure not going to stand up and be outspoken. However, where I think we have some potential to restore sanity is with deep pocketed Republican donors. If all of the Koch network and the Ken Griffins and the et cetera's and so forth of the world got together and said, because a lot of them, like Ken Griffin, first he wanted DeSantis. Now he's talking about Nikki, Nikki Haley, neither of whom have much of a shot. But if he's got those deep pockets, go to the RNC, put together a consortium like Koch does with his, you know, let's everybody give a hundred thousand and then we'll go to the RNC and tell them we got a hundred million, but this is how we want it spent. If the donors went to the Republican Party and said, no more, no more craziness, no more dictatorship. You know, we still want conservatives. We still want our tax cuts. We still want less government, but we don't want to bring down the form of government we have now. I think that would be what could bring about change. And sadly, I think there are those people out there. And I think those are the people who are trying to put their money into no labels because uh, they think they can do this workaround with somebody like Joe Manchin, for God's sake, which I think is just ridiculous and dangerous and a waste of their dough. And now I've finished my rant. So you may uh, you may yeah. tell me that you think I'm completely wrong. <laughs> No, I, I associate myself with your remarks. I think that that uh, when we're talking about Nikki Haley or even you know Ron DeSantis as being acceptable alternatives to Trump, in no other universe are those two, for instance, acceptable candidates for people who are even in the middle. I think rather even even than over on the left with us, those those are unacceptable. Canada. I mean, look at the stuff that Nikki Haley's been saying about you know, she's going to pull out of the climate accords, she pull out of the you, you know the, all kinds of international agreements. Uh, I mean, she, she's she's also a nut job. She's just not Trump. And DeSantis is horrifying, and in so many ways. But and the fact that we're looking to someone like him to save us from Trump is pretty dismaying. I don't know that the Republican business establishment, the donor class, has that kind of pull anymore, or if they have the will, if they're f afraid for some reason that this will result in the reelection of Joe Biden. And I understand that, you know, why some people are not happy with Joe Biden. And I, and, uh, you know, I, I think he's done an awfully good job as president under all the circumstances, but, um, he's, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's something that, that, uh, you know, we really want to, you know, try to, I mean, I think really the only hope right now is to get behind whoever the Democrats nominate, presumably Biden, and realize that that's, that's going to be the, uh, the, the way it's going to go. 
Mm. Do you think, um, you know, he's not running for reelection? He's going to tour the country and talk to people. Um, Joe Manchin is, which is, um, I think, a, a way of saying, can I get the money and can I get the support to be a third party presidential candidate? Do you think no labels is going to be a spoiler in 2024? I worry about it. I worry about Jill, uh, Jill Stein becoming a spoiler. Uh, why is she still around? What, why haven't we gotten rid has, of her? She cannot take a hint. She's run at what, at least two times, I think. Did she run three times or just two? But, but, you know, she gets, you know, 1% of the vote, but 1% of the vote is really significant when you're talking about an election that's going to be as close as the next one's going to be. It's vanity. It's it's destructive. Uh, you know, Joe Kennedy, for you know, uh, or, or RFK Jr. These people are are uh, vain and deluded and destructive. Other than that, they're fine people. I guess. But, <laughs> but it's it's a one on one choice. Your choice as a voter is going to be Joe Biden or Donald Trump, almost certainly. And if if that choice isn't clear to you. If you think that, oh, I'll cast a protest vote, I'll vote oh, for Jill Scott, or I'll, I'll, you know, uh, and, and, or I'll vote for Kennedy, or I'll, I'll make a vote and show those guys what I think. That is one of the most dangerous votes you're going to cast. And as I believe Mark Jacob has put it, it may be the last vote you'll be allowed to cast. Yeah. Because I'm not sure that I, – I am seriously not sure that democracy survives another four years with, with Donald Trump in the White House. I don't I don't think there's any way it does. I mean, in addition to um, all the other things he said, he has uh, gone on record as saying that he wants to readjust the three branches of government because the executive branch really should have more power than the judicial or the congressional it really should kind of be uh, the kind of the overseer of those other two branches. And it doesn't really matter anyway, because the only people uh, who are going to be allowed to work in government are the people who are first and foremost loyal to Donald Trump. That's going to be the litmus test. I mean, the man is telling us exactly what he wants to do. I, I don't believe after what we lived through with him and before, I don't believe there are people out there who are saying, like they might have said a while back, oh, he can't possibly mean it. He can't possibly be that bad. I think he does, and I think he is. Oh, we've got to take a break. Um, Eric, I will give Eric Zorn a chime to respond when we come right back after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Thursday, and if you're a subscriber, you know Thursday's the day the new Pickian Sentinel comes out. The uh, beautiful thoughts, beautifully expressed. The founder and editor is Eric Zorn. He joins us now. I was just talking about the fact that maybe the first time around there were people who didn't believe that Trump could possibly mean everything he said and that he couldn't be that bad. I don't think this time around there's any such innocence on anyone's behalf. And yet, as you said a moment ago, Eric, this election, if it is indeed between Trump and Biden, will likely be very close. Explain to me how that can be. Oh, well, because nearly half the country belongs to the MAGA cult. It's, I mean, there is no – I don't quite understand. I do talk to Republicans, conservatives who show up on my message boards from time to time. 
And I, and I asked him about what is it about Biden that drives you so crazy? I mean, I, I know he's a Democrat and he has Democratic values and, you know, he believes in trans rights and things like that that drive you crazy and abortion rights that drive you crazy. But but uh, but he's 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 not he's not a uh, an out of bounds Democrat. He's not a member of the squad. He's not someone who is who is a, a radical transformer of, of the of the public he's he is he's a mainstream democrat he's got yeah. democratic and priorities a deal values and 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 yeah and a deal maker and and just he's not a threat to the republic and yet you're willing because you don't like what he does on immigration or you think gas prices are too high or or you're tired of, of worrying about people's pronouns or whatever bug is up their butts these days that, that they they feel like they they're willing to throw out you know, 250 years of, of American history over this and, and, um, accept this, this would be tyrant as their leader. I, I just, I don't get it, but let's face it. Some good half the public is almost, you know, nearly that is, is, is there. And the way the electoral college is set up, uh, which is something that, that, uh, drives me wild now that the Democrats are winning the popular vote in every presidential election and yet, Often losing the the electoral college vote, the, the way it's set up, these small red states uh, filled or populated heavily by MAGA cultists get a, a very outsized thumb on the scale. That's how yeah, it happens, they do. and there's nothing we can do about that except except you know you, you you've got to you know you just got to mobilize. So you you got to get you know people who are going to vote. Democratic and a vote for Biden, you've got to get them out to the polls. I, I don't think it's a question of finding new voters. I think it's a question of, of motivating the voters that you have. And That's reminding interesting that you say are- that because I've talked to two voting experts within the last couple of months who, you know, have both said exactly what you just said. Don't don't put your attention trying to get the swing voter, trying to get the person who hasn't made up their mind. You need to get the person who basically is a Democrat and believes in progressive ish liberal democratic values, but maybe doesn't always vote. You know, it's oh, it's not convenient. I forgot. I couldn't remember where I was supposed to go. I didn't know the time. And the woman said, if you can get those people to vote, then Democrats win. Yes, and I think that the abortion issue is so salient right now that you're going to find that people are really those kind of people are going to get out to vote in the end if you can remind them of the stakes. Yes, if if uh, if if a Republican win, I mean, the Republicans are probably going to take the Senate, just given the way things are going, given what Joe Manchin is doing, and if they hang on to the House and the Senate and they win the White House, you can basically. Kiss goodbye your abortion rights. It's it's quite likely that some sort of national ban on abortion will pass somehow, and that uh, you'll have a six week limit, and uh, you know all kinds of things are going to happen. I mean, that's mm-hmm. I think that's almost the least of it. The kind of things that might that might well happen, and. I think you're going to really have to remind people of the consequences. You're going to have to show them Lincoln Project commercials over and over until they realize that this isn't fooling around here. This isn't like, oh, you know, the lesser of two evils or something like that. One of these things where we're like, who cares who wins? And, you know, I've certainly been guilty myself in certain elections of of not even voting because I can't decide between candidates. But this one, the choice is so incredibly stark. Well, as Adam Kinzinger said, this isn't a choice between Trump and Biden. This is a choice between uh, saving our democracy and letting our democracy fall. 
Yeah, and it's such a shame that someone like Adam Kinzinger gets run out of his party, and that Liz Cheney is run out of her party, and and that Chris Christie is in, in single digits in the polls. And and again, I you know I, don't, I think I disagree with them. All those all three of those candidates are those those politicians on just about every issue. But I, I think they have integrity in some ways. Maybe maybe not Chris Christie so much, but but uh, certainly Cheney and and Kinzinger, and they get just run out of their party. They're booed off the stage, yeah. and. And, and that's really that's really disappointing. But you know, it's it's uh, it, it's a it's a long time out. We've seen these polls taken, and and people say, well, you know, Obama wasn't polling well at this point uh, in in his his reelection cycle, and that uh, it's very difficult to say a year out what's going to happen on these um, uh, on the, in these elections. But I think that Biden needs to ramp up his campaigning. He needs to get out there. He needs to try to somehow mitigate this age issue that's dogging him. Yeah, he, I mean, he's an old man, and I I think he shouldn't run for re-election. I think he should have realized that a year ago and stepped aside and let some of the younger blood take over. But again, the problem with these politicians, all of them, both parties, is they, they have such high opinions of themselves, <laughs> and, and they don't. And and I mean it, it. I mean I don't know who's out there though. I mean I would I would vote for a hundred year old Democrat over Donald Trump. I would vote for a, a, a broken curing machine over Donald Trump. So, <laughs> yes. so I, and I and I think that, that when the choice is as stark as it is, that uh, you know it, it really isn't going to matter that much. Uh, but I just I fear that the the calculus by the Democratic Party is not as strong as it could be. That you would probably be doing a lot better with a candidate like, say, Gretchen Whitmer or even a J.B. Pritzker. I think Pritzker's been a very good governor, and I think that he could run a good campaign. Um, Gavin Newsom's got a lot to recommend him to the governor of, of California, and 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 of course there are a number of other Democrats who who are likely and part of the, a next generation. And and these uh, these aging Democrats are going to have to step aside and let the next generation. Uh, move up, and yeah. I, I wish that Biden had done that. Um, I'm with Axelrod on this. I think it's uh, it's probably past time, but but at this point, I don't know what you can. But do. you know, Axelrod has never been a big Biden supporter. Even when Axelrod was in Obama's administration, he was not a huge Joe Biden fan. So, frankly, those comments I think um, carry less weight than they otherwise would. But we don't have time to get into that because we are past our time. Uh, Eric Zorn, this issue of the Picayune Sentinel has a very sweet Jim Harbaugh story. I suggest you uh, sign up to be able to read it. Eric, thanks for being here. Hey, Joan, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. I'm joined by Cameron Stevenson, who's the founding editor and chief political correspondent for Arizona's uh, news organization, uh, Courier and their publication there, which you can find it online, is the Copper Courier. Look for coppercourier.com. We were just talking about an article that one of Cameron's reporters, uh, Reagan Priest, had written about young people, Gen Z, running for and being elected to school boards. And I think I read something, Cameron, and I, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but I really do think that there was some uh, truth to this, that we're in a way a little bit lucky because generally when the Moms for Liberty organization comes in and tries to take over school board meetings or tries to run candidates for election, 
they are so over the top. They are so extra that it makes it easier to oppose them. God forbid they should yeah. ever figure out how to try to be reasonable. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I very much, uh, you know, I, I see them as the 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 next stage in the Marjorie Heather Greens and Lauren Boebert of the world. Yeah, uh, they're they're loud. They have opinions, but they don't know what to do with. Them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, thankfully, uh, I think, especially you know, when it comes to these local elections, like school boards, uh, voters see through that. People see the inauthenticity. Um, you know, people who are concerned about electing people to these school boards, they actually value public education and they want to make sure that the students in their area succeed. Even if, even if you know, their kids are up old and grown or they, they don't have any children, they're, you know, they're voting because they're investing in the future of our communities. And when you hear these bombastic speeches about, you know, hypothetical situations that couldn't possibly have happened in the real world, and people are getting upset and they're making a scene and they're, you know, posturing for, you know, posting on posting videos of themselves online. People see through that. Uh, whereas, you know, the inverse is, you know, they see uh, a 17 year old kid who's talking about how he, you know, just finished his calculus class and he's nervous about his test. But he also wants to make sure that calculus is still available in, in all the schools in his district. So his, so his friends can take that along with art. Um, you know, and, and people, people respond to that. You know, it's, uh, it's authentic mm-hmm. and, and it's respected. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that I want to touch on um, before we get to the end of our time is I wanted to talk to you about what is going on in Arizona with, uh, with the fake electors. I mean, you know, I mean, we saw uh, slates of fake electors created and these fake electors were supposed to be substituted for the real electors that actually got voted in. And that's how the election was going to be taken from Joe Biden and handed to Donald Trump. And I believe there's actually at least what an investigation going on now in Arizona. Yes, yes, there is. So in so, you know, and this happened in I believe you mentioned in several states throughout the country where these fake electors were selected. Uh, there have already been charges announced in against fake electors in Georgia and Michigan. Um, now, some people are, are kind of wondering what's taking our attorney general so long. She's a Democrat. She's long said that she will investigate them, and she has been for several months. Uh, the difference is that she wasn't able to start investigating until she was elected uh, in January, you know, until she assumed office in January, whereas in Michigan and in uh, Georgia, they were able to start the investigations much earlier. So while it's still going on here, it's, it's very robust. It's, it's sprawling. And our Attorney General, Chris Mays, um, you know, she's, she's very much on top of, of holding these, these fake electors accountable, uh, which is going to be, you know, a very unique task here because, you know, one of them was the former chair of the Arizona Republican Party, and a few of them are elected officials. So she's got her work cut out for is for her is basically what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 she really kind of had to start from scratch. Her predecessor, uh, Mark Burnovich, who was our Attorney General before, he was uh, he was running for U.S. Senate uh, in 2022. Uh, he lost the primary and, and you know didn't you know do anything after that. 
but uh, um, public records requests into his calendar have shown that he basically abandoned his post as the attorney general as soon as he started his campaign. Yeah. And so, you know, in the unlikely event that he even would have investigated this at all, uh, that would have stopped, you know, in early 2022. And so, you know, she came into an office that had, you know, little going on, uh, had several things that needed to happen and, uh, and has been working on this, um, you know, she's been very tight-lipped about it, but she's been working on it very diligently. Well, that's good to hear. Be interesting to see what she comes up with. Before I let you go, Cameron, I have to ask you, I have friends who've lived for a long time in Arizona, and it seems that each summer gets progressively hotter and the high temperatures last for a longer period of time. When you have weeks at a time where it's over 110, how do you cope with that? What do you do? Oh, well, let me tell you, I definitely uh, yearn for uh, my childhood when it wasn't like that. Um, but, yeah, the reality is, you know, due to climate change and, and a few other factors, you know, we have weeks on end of 110 plus days. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, I think a lot of people, what we do is uh, a kind of a form of hibernation uh, where we, you know, we stay inside our, our office or our workplace uh, while the sun is out, uh, you know, and then once the sun goes down is when we do our grocery shopping or get our errands done. Um, it's, it is, it's very strange. Um, you know, I, I have friends and coworkers who live back East and they're dealing with snow and, and we just had some rain today in the sixties which uh, is kind of nice, but uh, those summers, they, they can be extremely brutal, especially if you don't have the luxury to, to hide out anywhere cool. And it, just seems, it just seems utterly inhuman. Um, I mean, I've heard that it can get so hot that airplanes can't land because the runways have started to melt. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, airlines or airplanes have to kind of, circle around for a little while. Uh, the, the pavement gets so hot that if you have your skin on it, it you can get second degree burn. Um, we've, you know, and this is, this is really, really sad. And I've, I've been covering it for several years, but every year we have more and more heat related deaths, uh, both from people who don't have stable housing. And so they're outdoors or from people who couldn't afford to pay their electric bill, oh. so their electricity was shut off. Now, there has been, you know, stopgaps put in place since those deaths began occurring to require uh, utilities to keep the cool air on. Yeah, until like we have, to, we have to keep things hot in the winter. Cameron, that, that yeah, music means exactly. that I have talked to you beyond my time. That is the studio's <laughs> way of reminding me it is time to be quiet now. Cameron Stevenson writes and uh, edits the Copper Courier. It's a wonderful news site. Thank you, Cameron, for being here. That's Thank good you for so me. Much, um, driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next, and I apologize, Patty. I've run over into your time. Um, I will see you tomorrow if they let me come back. Have a great evening. Good night.